Hi, I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we are taking a look at the Gospel of Matthew with Dr. Tommy Gibbons, Professor of New Testament at Fuller Theological Seminary. Dr. Gibbons, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be here, Dennis. Thanks for having me. So, you are actually working on a book about the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, What is the title of that, and when do you expect it to be out? That is a a good question because I don't think I have total control over the title. Um, The provisional title right now uh, is Light in the Shadow of Death, a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm hoping to finish the manuscript uh, by the end of this year. And then it will depend on how much editing I have left for the poor editor to help me with. Uh, as to when it comes out, but hopefully uh, maybe sometime in 2022. And it'll be published by Erdman's, is that right? That's right, yeah. Excellent. Okay, we look forward to that. So to get started, a little background information. Uh, What can you tell us about the authorship of the gospel? So we don't know a lot about the authorship of Matthew. It seems like um, by... Relatively early in the second century, um, at least by the end of the second century AD, the narrative that we now identify as Matthew was attributed to Matthew and began to bear uh, on its manuscripts that were being circulated uh, an ascription that identified Matthew as the author. But uh, we don't know uh, how it circulated in its earliest years, if it bore Matthew's name at that point, if it didn't, if Matthew was identified at the author as the author from the earliest days that it was circulated or not. So there's, we have some evidence that allows us to say that the gospel was perhaps written by Matthew, but it's uh, like a lot of questions with the early days of biblical writings, we have to fill in a lot of gaps and speculate a little bit as well. And what can you tell us about the dating? So the dating of Matthew is something that we usually uh, also have to speculate about to some degree because there's nothing within the narrative itself that identifies when it was written. We can look at writings that we know when they were written and that quote Matthew's gospel uh, so that we already have, for example, in the very beginning of the second century. So we know that Matthew was being circulated as a scriptural text, at least by the early hundreds and uh, likely in circulation for decades before then. Uh, But we don't know exactly when I'd say the scholarly consensus is probably somewhere in the 70s or 80s AD. Uh, But certainly there are some scholars that date it earlier. And I don't have a big dog in that fight myself. I think sometimes we imagine that we're going to be able to understand what Matthew is saying better if we can pinpoint when it was written or who wrote it. But my own approach to Matthew uh, sort of operates on the conviction that the best interpretations of it while they're historically responsible, hopefully, are really trying to read the text as closely as we can and not speculatively reconstructing too much of the historical backdrop that we use to make sense of that text. 
And so I don't weigh in too strongly about when it was written or whom it was written by, even though I think there are, you know, certainly some better or worse arguments that can be made on those points. And what should we know about the structure? So Matthew's structure is relatively unique among the three Gospels that we call synoptic, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in that it has uh, five extensive teaching discourses of Jesus's that seem to offer a kind of structure for the whole narrative. Uh, It also has uh, stories of Jesus's childhood, which are not in uh, the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. Uh, Aside from those teaching discourses, the narratives uh, that sort of segments that are in between resemble quite closely the, the order and the content of Mark's Gospel. And that is partly what leads many scholars to uh, conclude that Mark was one among many sources, perhaps, of Matthew's gospel. And uh, what can you tell us? Why was this, uh, why did it become the first book in the New Testament? And then further, what is the the purpose of the writing of the gospel? I'm glad you asked that because I think that a lot of times these days, uh, people study the math, the Gospel of Matthew, as if its place in the canon didn't really matter that much. Um, and I think that its place in the canon is already a kind of commentary from the earliest followers of Jesus about what they understood the book to be about. So I think that Matthew came to be first because it seems to be the Gospel about Jesus that gained the most and widespread authority uh, early on. I don't think that the implication necessarily is that it was the first written, although some of the patristic writers uh, in the starting in like the fifth century sometimes assume that it was the first written because it's now the first one in the canonical order. But I think that the reason that it's first when uh, stories about Jesus are being collected is the kind of wide authority that it already commanded. It's clearly the gospel source that is uh, perhaps the most widely quoted in the second century um, by writers from really across the Mediterranean world. So I think that probably is the best way of accounting for why it's first. Another, you know, um, reason, and this probably goes into the second part of your question, is that Matthew provides a really uh, smooth segue uh, from what uh, disciples of Jesus would have understood as scripture that they had already inherited and what we now call Old Testament and the Christian tradition. So, you know, the whole of Matthew's gospel begins with this uh, kind of well-known line, the book of the Genesis of Jesus, Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And so that already sort of places the story of Jesus um, right within the programmatic story of the people of God that was already current and authoritative among Jesus's uh, disciples and the movement that was growing around his name. So I think that's also a reason why that uh, Gospel of Matthew was placed first uh, in the canon. 
And that does say something about its purpose. I think its purpose is primarily to uh, provide teaching, what we might call in our day formation, for communities of Jesus's disciples. And these would have been communities that in many places were still operating as synagogues, um, may have also known themselves according to this term, uh, although it wouldn't have meant exactly what we mean by it now, the uh, church. But the point is that it was written for uh, communities of people that were following Jesus together and to guide them as uh, the teaching, the story of Jesus that would shape and kind of uh, illumine their lives together. So we know from early on that a gospel like Matthew was read in public, uh, liturgically, you might say, at the gathering of uh, the community. And so that, I think, is the best way to account for the purpose of Matthew's gospel broadly. has some sub-purposes, of course, um, that we can get into, but I think broadly that's the best way to understand its general concern. So you talked about community. Uh, some scholars have talked, speculated about the Matthean community. Is there much we can know about that? I don't think so myself. And, you know, I should admit here that I'm speaking from my own perspective, so I don't want to represent a kind of general consensus on this. But um, ever since some scholarship that emerged uh, in the last quarter of the 20th century, um, especially a great book by J. Lou Martin called History and Theology in the Fourth Gospel, this idea of a Matthean community or a Johannine community has become a sort of a go-to category for making sense of the audience of a particular gospel story or other writing, and then using our ability to describe that audience to aid our interpretation of the, of the book. I, I find that that approach is a little too speculative uh, for me. I don't think that we have really any good ways to define uh, the specific audience for whom Matthew was writing. I suspect that um, the writer of the gospel did have particular communities in mind, that the story itself probably emerged from the telling of the Jesus story and the sort of sharing of his teaching in those communities. So it's not to say that there wasn't a relatively particular audience in view when the Gospel of Matthew was being composed, I just don't know that we have the ability to really reconstruct it. And I do agree here, I'm pretty sympathetic with the perspective of Richard Bauckham, that these stories were written um, to reach a wide audience that could not actually be easily defined. In other words, they're, they're written as narratives about Jesus that are going to have wide appeal and probably find their way into communities that the writers themselves could not even anticipate. I think they understood that that was the kind of story um, that we were writing, that they were writing. And you can see that still in, in books that we write today. Um, we might have a particular audience in view. Sometimes that makes a book better, but that doesn't mean that that's the only audience that we want to read a book. Uh, sometimes we write something knowing and hoping that it's going to finally reach a wider audience than we have in mind as we're writing it. And I think the Gospel of Matthew is like that. 
So getting to Jesus, how does Matthew identify Jesus and what is distinctive about the way Matthew sees Jesus compared to the other Gospels? So Matthew presents Jesus from the opening line of the Gospel as the Messiah. And I think that that is probably uh, the most fundamental term for who Jesus is in the entire uh, narrative of Matthew. Now, that sometimes um, leads readers to think that Matthew is trying to establish that Jesus is the Messiah and that that is Matthew's purpose. And I don't think that's quite right. I think that um, Matthew writes for people who already know Jesus as the Messiah, will already be living according to that conviction. And so the purpose of the story is not to persuade people that Jesus is the Messiah, but to give an account of who Jesus is as the Messiah. It's a subtle difference, but I think that um, it's a difference that's significant for making sense of what is in the gospel, uh, because it's more concerned to teach people who are disciples of Jesus together than it is to persuade people that don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is. There's a whole slew of other terms that Matthew uses to identify Jesus that overlap in their meaning with uh the meaning of Messiah. A key one there would be Matthew uh, presenting Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, so that term is one that is from the scriptures that Matthew had inherited. Uh, we might think of Psalm 2, uh, where the king that inherits all the peoples of the world is presented as God's son, as God's heir. And so Matthew does present Jesus as son of God in the sense of being that final human king of Israel who would come to rule not only over all of Israel, but all the peoples of the world. Along with that, obviously, uh, the opening line of Matthew presents Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, in our day, people will often uh, jump to the conclusion that that's a commentary on Jesus's genes or something. Uh, I don't think that's actually Matthew's concern uh, to say that Jesus is the son of David or the son of Abraham means that Jesus is the one who is inheriting the future that was promised to those figures and to the people of God uh, through the names of those figures. So Jesus is the one in whom the promises made to Abraham are coming to their fullest fruition. And the same could be said about David. And then those names, especially the name of David, crop up later in the story in really striking ways that say something about how those promises made to those epic figures of Israel's past are being fulfilled uh, in Jesus. And then, of course, you know, the Son of Man is another key title that Matthew uses to describe Jesus. And that's one that he shares uh, with other New Testament writers, uh, other gospel writers. And um, I, I suppose it's key that for Matthew, uh, perhaps even more than any of the other gospels, Jesus is quintessentially a teacher. We already talked about the structure being a narrative that's punctuated by these five great discourses of teaching of Jesus that are not organized in that way in any of the other gospels. And then the entire gospel story concludes with Jesus sending his 11 remaining apostles to disciple all of the peoples 
uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then this is the key, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. So I think that Jesus as teacher is especially prominent in Matthew's presentation um, relative to other gospels. And to talk about these as distinctives, as you said, I think is important. But one thing I guess I want to caution listeners or viewers about is sometimes we imagine that when something is distinct to a particular gospel like Matthew's, then it's not reflected in the other gospels. And I don't think we should imply that. Clearly, Mark presents Jesus as a teacher. Uh, Jesus teaches uh, a great deal in Luke and in John. It's just that that term for identifying Jesus seems to have a special prominence in Matthew that deserves attention, but not in a way that makes Matthew sort of utterly unique uh, in that regard. So that, I think, is one way of talking about a distinctive of Matthew. Another one is uh, Jesus as fulfillment. So you're, uh, those of you listening or watching might remember that in the first couple chapters of Matthew especially, uh, various um, events take place in Jesus's life, and then the, the writer will add, so that the word of the prophet was fulfilled. Mm-hmm. So we have these fulfillment sayings that are uh, unique to Matthew. They come in the beginning, and I think that says something about what Matthew distinctively is up to. He really wants to highlight uh, the peculiar way in which Jesus is fulfilling uh, the hopes of his people across a long uh, past as remembered in Scripture. All right. And so various themes uh, contend for the, the top spot. Mm. Scholars assign all sorts of themes to be, this is the, the meta theme for the gospel. Um, what are some of those themes and which one do you choose to be the chief of themes? So that's another question that's kind of hard for me to answer because I worry a little bit about pitting, you know, one theme against another. Right. So that then you kind of force the the narrative to fit one over the other when in fact maybe they need to be held in a delicate tension with one another even if they can be distinguished. Um, but it's still a fair question because there are some themes that are more prominent in Matthew than others and maybe even than other gospel stories. I think the theme of fulfillment is uh, a big one that I would want to emphasize. And maybe to clarify here that fulfillment doesn't mean uh, sometimes what we assume it to mean, which is uh, something relatively superficial, like, you know, uh, some random prophecy that we think we find in Isaiah or something that Jesus did the right thing on the right day of the year at the right time, and therefore he fulfilled a prophecy. Uh, prophetic hope, even the promises in the law, uh, are quite a bit more sophisticated than that uh, in the Old Testament and in early Christian interpretation. Uh, so that the way that Jesus would fulfill something might be uh, much more subtle. Um, you can think about a saying that comes early on in the story of Jesus as a child when he's forced to migrate with his family. Uh, taken by his father to Egypt, and then uh, comes back after the threat has passed. And Matthew says, so that the word of the prophet was fulfilled, 
and refers to Hosea, which is not talking about uh, promise for the future in any clear way. It's a, a report of what God has done. Out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Israel as a people, as God's son. And uh, Matthew is saying not that that was a prophecy, you know, in a way that many of us might be able to identify today, but instead that there is a kind of pattern to the way that God has revealed God's self over generations in the Israelite past that can now be seen to be reaching a kind of fullness or culmination in Jesus's life. And so that's a, a somewhat subtler kind of fulfillment than we sometimes imagine uh, we should be thinking of when we talk about prophecy in the Old Testament or something like that. The same would be true about the way Jesus fulfills the law. To fulfill the law is not about um, some kind of detailed adherence um, to the legal codes that we have in Scripture. I think it's much more about uh, what sort of life for the future of Israel does the law um, enjoin? It's a life of loving God, a life of one, loving one another. And there's something about the whole of that law that Jesus has come to fulfill, that he embodies, that he's teaching his disciples, his generation um, to seek together. And so I think that is um, a way to understand the, ful- the fulfillment theme that perhaps is sometimes missed. Another one uh, theme that I would want to keep up there prominent is the way that Jesus is um, the presence of God, the presence of Israel's God. So um, you might remember that in the birth narrative of Jesus, uh, we learn that uh, he's going to be called Emmanuel, which means the, the writer tells us God with us. And then the whole story of Matthew ends with Jesus saying, uh, I am with you uh, until the end of the age. And so there's a kind of bookending way of uh, leaving the reader, the listener to this story with the impression that who Jesus finally is, is the presence of God uh, with us in a transformative uh, way. And that is another, I think, probably key theme Um Maybe I'll offer one more, and you can ask for more if you want, but don't want to get things too complicated. I think that a theme that I would want to highlight for readers is um, not utterly unique to Matthew, but I think it's especially striking in Matthew, and that is the way that um, Jesus does not conform uh, to what the people who are closest to him, his best friends, uh, to say nothing of other people of his generation— and I'd want to include us as well. Um, he doesn't conform neatly to their expectations. And so the revelation of God in Jesus um, offers a challenge uh, to people's senses, to their perception, to their life, to the patterns by which they're living. It doesn't simply confirm them neatly. Uh, it calls them into learning something that they don't know, to getting to know God in a way that they don't. And uh, that obviously is a painful process that involves um, Jesus's closest followers denying him, betraying him, deserting him, uh, his being killed um, partly by the, the conspiracy of some of the authorities of his own generation. And we sometimes will, 
you know, look at that kind of down our nose and be like, oh, you know, had I been there watching Jesus do all these powerful things, I would have been so impressed as to just be a lover of Jesus all the way to the end. And I think that's naive. I think that the gospel of Matthew as revelation, as witness to God's self-disclosure is also shocking. It's rattling and it's purposefully that way because it's calling us into a future that we don't know how to live uh, without God's help. And so that quality of revelation, I think, is a key theme uh, to the gospel of Matthew that deserves kind of patient attention and an ongoing openness in the way that we read it, expecting uh, to meet God in a way that uh, we have not been able to imagine uh, before. All right. And uh, another thing would be the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom Mm -hmm. of God. Uh, What do you think, um, what is that to Jesus? How does he describe it? I probably should have mentioned that as one of the themes, Dennis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, the kingdom of heaven is uh, a unique phrase uh, in Matthew. Uh, The other synoptic gospels talk primarily in terms of the kingdom of God. And by contrast, Matthew's gospel is just littered, you might say, with this phrase kingdom of heaven. I think Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of God only four times or so. So um, I don't think we want to draw a distinction that is too sharp between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I think there's, um, you know, a lot of overlap in what these mean. But the kingdom of heaven brings out certain connotations that uh, perhaps the kingdom of God would not. And it does hearken in my mind back, especially to a book that's important for Matthew, which is the book of Daniel, uh, where God, the God of Israel, is presented specifically as the God of heaven, the God who is over all other gods, and as a consequence, uh, even expressing that God's power in the midst of his people's subordination and exile, uh, showing the power of Israel's God, even in its position of weakness, over the gods of their Gentile oppressors. So, The kingdom of heaven, I think, is the kingdom of the God that uh, is of heaven in that sense. And its emphasis in Matthew, I think, is as a, a power of rule, a rule that is coming from God, uh, from heaven uh, to the earth. And so what we should be Understanding as we're hearing the proclamation of John the Baptist and then Jesus that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near is that this promised rule of Israel's God is coming from heaven into the earth with all kinds of transformative effects on the life of the people, on their life in the land, with ramifications for all of the earth, all of creation. And sometimes we've um, perhaps adopted a tradition that I would want to question, which is the kingdom of heaven being about a place that uh, people go when they die, Um, sort of thinking of kingdom of heaven as uh, neatly synonymous with heaven or something like that. But it's quite clear, I think, if you read Matthew closely, that the kingdom of heaven is coming to the earth. Uh, It's even enshrined that way in the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples in his first teaching discourse, 
that a lot of us are familiar with. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's the trajectory of the kingdom of heaven, not as a destination that we're trying to leave the earth to get to, but as a source of God's power and rule that is coming into the earth and spreading in the earth with all kinds of transformative impact. And of course, the gospel of Matthew is all about uh, how the kingdom of heaven comes to be on the earth and then commending to the readers uh, the ongoing call of that kingdom, which is still coming uh, so that we'll welcome it, participate in it, um, become messengers of it, witnesses to it in the way that we live as followers of Jesus together. So Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and yet we see in Paul, Paul's gospel, we see some, hold it, are these the same gospels? How do they fit together? I think the church, I think especially evangelicals, those who put so much emphasis on proclaiming the gospel, are very confused about how to understand these two together. Yeah, well, that's a fair confusion, and I think um, some distinctions probably deserve to be made, although I'd probably add, like I have with other things we've talked about, that it's not a distinction that should be overly drawn or drawn too sharply. I would say that there is a kind of coherence to the gospel that Jesus proclaims, the narrative that is called a gospel, uh, the gospel of Matthew, and then the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, that he even talks about as his gospel, that he's teaching but let's see if we can kind of put these together a little bit. The, the gospel, as it comes in the story of the gospel of Matthew, is quite simple. It's the proclamation that the kingdom uh, from heaven has drawn near, has come upon you, we might translate. And so it is a word of announcement, a word of revelation, a word of invitation, a call. Uh, that the kingdom, the rule of God that we've just talked about is coming from heaven in a way that has been promised, um, but is going to be uh, the fullness, you might say, of God's presence on the earth as ruler, as king. And that, I think, is what John the Baptist is proclaiming, uh, starting in Matthew 3. And then uh, we learn that when John was arrested, uh, Jesus takes up exactly the same proclamation uh, when he uh, is in chapter four, uh, you might say, taking the mantle of that kingdom of heaven uh, from John and carrying it forward. Uh, that's important for us to remember because we will often imagine that in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about the gospel, or say in Matthew 10, when he sends out the 12 apostles as 12 for the first time and says for them to proclaim the gospel, it's not actually directly about Jesus. <laughs> the gospel in Matthew is not um, believe in me necessarily. Uh, it is that the kingdom of heaven has drawn near and that there are particular ways in which that kingdom is becoming evident to people, the power that is coming from Jesus, that is coming from others that Jesus shares his power with, uh, his apostles. And that kingdom, more than Jesus as a particular person, is the subject of the gospel in Matthew. 
Now, that's not to say that Jesus as a person is insignificant, because quite clearly for Matthew, Jesus is the subject of the gospel. But in the way Jesus presents himself to his disciples, and especially to his generation, he's not calling upon them directly to believe something about him, (laughs) which sometimes, as you said, evangelicals think has to be the heart of what we say, um, that you've got to get people to think or believe the right thing about Jesus. And I think eventually we do need to reckon with Jesus and who Jesus is, but sometimes our understanding of the gospel becomes overly narrow and focused on uh, something that we have in our minds about the person of Jesus to the exclusion of what Jesus was all about, what he was Mm. doing, what he invested his own life, his own words in. And that I think can really uh, help us uh, grasp a fuller sense of the gospel in Matthew. Now, how that relates to Paul, I think we could say that at its most simple, Paul's gospel is that Jesus is the Lord. And that implies a story because you're talking about a person. And what we find Paul doing in his letters, we see this in Acts as well, is filling out that sort of summary proclamation that Jesus is Lord with the story of who Jesus is. And of course, it's not just a story of Jesus um, dying out of nowhere at the end of his life, uh, as we sometimes will think when we're sort of talking about the gospel in summary terms. Instead, um, the, the gospel about Jesus, especially as uh, it's presented in the book of Acts by Paul's and other apostles preaching, is really about the whole life of Jesus, which of course culminates in a death that kind of shows us the fullness of who Jesus has been throughout his whole life. So it's true that Paul's gospel is focused on Jesus's death and especially his resurrection, but not in defiance of the rest of his life. Instead, his dying by crucifixion uh, and the way that he goes to his death is, you might say, uh, the culmination, uh, the fullness of how he has lived his entire life. His death shows us kind of quintessentially who he is. And the fact that he died by crucifixion rather than dying, say, by being run over by a chariot or something like that, that's significant. Um, How Jesus died is not incidental to the meaning of his death or Mm. who his whole life showed him to be. And crucifixion was, of course, um, the uh, form of capital punishment reserved by Roman authorities for particular kinds of threat, uh, especially in the Roman world. And Jesus came to be crucified because for the Roman authority, Pilate, uh, he did finally pose sufficient threat to imperial order that uh, Pilate sought to empty him of power, empty his name of the influence that was clearly beginning to present a problem uh, for Roman rule. And of course, this is what some of the authorities of Jesus's day wanted because they also perceived Jesus to be a threat to the established order. So I think in both, you know, Paul and in Matthew, um, we're talking about the good news of how God has been revealed uh, in and through Jesus, but it's not Jesus as just an isolated person. It's the uh, transformative effect of Jesus's life in community 
in particular places that challenges um, the established order of those places, um, especially when that order is being maintained and policed by corrupt authorities with whom Jesus, of course, clashes uh, throughout Matthew. And maybe that's one last thing I'll say, Dennis, is the term gospel, euangelion in Greek, is not actually one that we find um, in the Old Testament or in what we would call the Septuagint, the Greek scriptures that Matthew draws from, that other New Testament writers draw from, that early disciples of Jesus used primarily as scripture. And the one place where that word is very prominent uh, is actually an imperial propaganda. Uh, So that gospel was a word that was used by uh, Roman political figures and writers to propagate the uh, news of the rule of a particular uh, powerful Roman figure, especially um, perhaps the the first emperor, Julius Caesar's adopted son, uh, Augustus, Octavian, who took the name Augustus. So uh, I think that that indicates that for both Paul and for Jesus, in Matthew, and really for the gospel tradition that we now have in our Bibles, we have these four books that are called gospels. They all, in their original setting, have a kind of anti-imperial edge to them. Um, They are stories, they are words, they are testimonies about a figure who has challenged um, Roman domination of the world, and by extension, I think, other imperialist ways of trying to rule the world uh, by human beings. So uh, you've undoubtedly uh, studied tons and tons of what other uh, scholars have said about Matthew, um, going all the way back to the church fathers and throughout the church age, and especially modern scholars. What um, insights or approaches are significant to you? I'm glad that you framed the question that way, because I think that it's important for us not to assume that our kind of modern tradition of Bible commentary Um, is the first place to go to learn how Matthew has been understood across the kind of generations of the church. Um, I myself am drawn especially to uh, some early writers that uh, wrote either commentaries on Matthew's gospel or appeal to Matthew's gospel in sermons. One of those is John Chrysostom, uh, for example, a figure Uh, from the 4th century. Um, I also uh, find a lot of inspiration um, in uh, commentaries from our day. I guess I would mention someone like um, Dale Allison, I think, is one of the best commentators of our time on Matthew's Gospel. And part of the strength of his commentary is putting Matthew's gospel into conversation with some of those early sources I mentioned before apostolic fathers, um, like Ignatius, for example, in the second century in Antioch, um, a place of a very large Jewish presence, significant center for the Jesus movement already in the early generations. And, uh, Dale Allison does a really good job. I think of, interacting with those early sources and how they were engaging Matthew's gospel. And they were, of course, people that were reading Matthew uh, in the language in which it was written uh, in Koine Greek. And so I think that is uh, significant as well. Um, 
I've benefited a lot from writers uh, who take into account the longer tradition of Matthew's gospel over the generations um, from the apostolic fathers, um, someone like Origen, uh, for example, uh, beginning of the third century, knows Matthew's gospel, draws on Matthew's gospel, is someone who is also in conversation with Jewish sages. And I think that uh, that's a really important uh, source for interpretation for us because Jesus himself was a Jew. Uh, His movement arose in a Jewish community. His earliest followers were Jewish. Even people from among the Gentiles that become uh, disciples of Jesus are embracing the Jewish Messiah. They're embracing the God of the Jews as their own. They also adopt the law of the God of the Jews as their law. And so to read Matthew without any kind of dialogue with uh, Jewish sources, including non-Christian Jewish sources, I think impoverishes our interpretation of Matthew. So I've benefited a lot from uh, even recent Jewish commentary um, on Matthew's gospel uh collections even of, say, rabbinic teaching that, lo and behold, uh, reflect a lot of the same patterns that we find in Jesus, but that Christians have often neglected because the Christian tradition um, over generations uh, came to separate itself from uh, the Jewish tradition, at least formally. And consequently, we've often read a gospel like Matthew's with very little knowledge of Uh, Jewish teaching in Jesus's day, the Jewish milieu that shaped Jesus himself and that shaped his followers. So that's a big um, concern of mine that we try to recover the Jewishness of Jesus and his followers, the context of his teaching, and allow that to inform our uh, study of Jesus. And I think um, Jews who have remained current with that kind of teaching over the generations can be great partners Uh, for us as we're uh, reinterpreting Matthew's gospel in light of some of those influences. All right. And uh, you've touched on this briefly already, but there's uh, existed throughout most of the gospel, throughout all the gospels, the hostile interface between Jesus and the religious power brokers of his day. Yeah. Uh, What is, what is that all about? It's a great question. Um, I think that conflict uh, within the people of God is, of course, thematic uh, to that people's history, much as it is, I suppose, uh, to the history of any human community. And so we find, obviously, in the stories of Israel across the past, all kinds of struggle for power, uh, struggle for dominance, sometimes just struggle to survive. And uh, the conflict is especially intense in Jesus's day because uh, the people have already now been living again for a couple generations under Roman occupation after uh, centuries of being dominated by uh, one Gentile kingdom after another uh, with sometimes only short-lived independence, uh, relative independence of that kind of foreign uh, power. And so there's a lot of pressure on people's lives uh, in Jesus's day to try to figure out how uh, to bear up 
under the difficulties of being dominated by Roman presence. And that makes the conflicts between uh, authorities especially intense sometimes. So what are those conflicts over in Matthew? Well, they're especially over uh, what the law means. Uh, The law as the authoritative way that God's word is presented is the terrain of debate for Jewish authorities in Jesus's day. And so we find um, Jesus from his earliest discourse um, urging his generation not to follow some of the prevalent interpretations of the law that are current among them. You have heard it said, um, but I say to you, and he's contrasting his own teaching with prevalent interpretations of the law by authorities of the day. I don't think he's necessarily setting himself against all authorities. We learn in Matthew 8, for example, that um, there were scribes uh, who were disciples of Jesus. Um, We have evidence from other gospels that uh, figures from groups that have become kind of notorious in the Christian tradition, like the Pharisees. Um, There were some Pharisees who were also followers of Jesus, um, Pharisees who were allies of Jesus. That doesn't always come through very clearly because um, Christian interpretation has tended to demonize those figures. But Jesus does clash clearly with some of them. And uh, that clash becomes more and more um, intense over the course of Matthew's gospel. Uh, It comes to center especially on the Sabbath. Um, because Jesus is concerned that the way that the Sabbath is being taught and policed is actually um, serving to, uh, you might say, weaken and aggravate, uh, weaken the people, aggravate their oppression. Um, It's not teaching them to care for one another, uh, to care for the land in a just way, but sometimes to be rivals of one another. And so uh, Jesus offers competitive interpretations of how to obey the commands about the Sabbath. He's especially sensitive to the hypocrisy of uh, some of the authorities in his day, which he uh, somewhat brazenly calls out in the presence of the population. And that's, of course, a direct threat uh, to those authorities when he's exposing their kind of public um, Uh, displays of commitment uh, to the law, uh, commitment to Israel's God, and yet um, manipulating uh, the law to their own advantage at the expense often of the weak, uh, often favoring the powerful and the wealthy in the way that they're overseeing the law. And Jesus uh, exposes that as prophets did before him, which is why I think by the time he gets to Jerusalem, that's how he's known to the masses. This is Jesus, the prophet, from Nazareth in Galilee. So he's doing what prophets before him did, um, especially to Israel's kings, exposing uh, the hypocrisy or corruption of their rule and calling for their uh, repentance. And finally, this leads Jesus to say that within uh, the generation that he has come to, a catastrophic scale of of destruction is going to uh, sweep through the land and leave the future of Israel changed forever. Uh, with the temple toppled to the ground and the people sort of reconfigured in terms of how power is distributed and who is ruling in the wake of that great change. One footnote on this, Dennis, that is important is we sometimes imagine that um, the conflict in Matthew 
is primarily between Jesus and uh, some of the authorities of his people. But I don't think that's quite right. I think the conflict also is between Jesus and his closest followers, as we talked about a little bit earlier in our conversation. Um, Jesus's own disciples often uh, become the object of his criticism. And they, of course, uh, join in the conspiracy in the end to hand Jesus over. Uh, They deny him and desert him uh, when he needs them the most. And so the conflict does not reside just between Jesus and a few corrupt authorities of his day. Um, It's between Jesus and even the people who know him best. And I think, again, that's something for us, um, because we don't want to assume that, you know, the gospel is a story of the bad guys and the good guys. Jesus is with the good guys. We're with the good guys. And, you know, the Jewish authorities are all with the bad guys or something. That's just not the way Matthew works. Uh, Instead, Jesus poses a challenge to absolutely everybody <laughs> mm-hmm. in the story, um, arouses resistance and conflict and opposition from everybody in the story. And I think that should include us. If we read Matthew's gospel and we just find ourselves nodding our heads at everything that Jesus says, I think we're not reading it very well. Um, at some point, we should feel confronted by Jesus and have to wrestle with that in ourselves. Or I don't think we're probably reading very closely or transparently. Uh, so that's another feature of the conflict of uh, the going on in Matthew's gospel that I think is worth emphasizing. So this leads us into the Sermon on the Mount, which says near the beginning that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. So how is Jesus's righteousness different from mm-hmm. those religious leaders? It's a great question. Um, I think that for... Uh, those authorities that Jesus talks about um, to figure out kind of what righteousness or justice of theirs Jesus is uh, exposing as inadequate. We have to kind of read through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and really the rest of the story uh, to get a feel for what um, he is saying, what he's identifying as in need of repentance and change in those authorities. Um, It has a lot to do with hypocrisy. Um, so in the Sermon on the Mount, you may remember, uh, Jesus criticizes these authorities for making great displays, uh, of how they give alms, uh, to the poor, um, displays, uh, in the way that they pray, um, that seeks to kind of, uh, present themselves as reliable authorities, um, to be trusted by the people, but in fact is hiding, purposes um, that are unjust and at odds with uh, the teaching of the law and especially how God is being revealed in this kingdom coming from heaven. Uh, When it comes to those first um, statements right after he says, you know, unless your righteousness, your justice surpasses that of scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter this kingdom that is coming from heaven. um, He actually starts going through the Decalogue. Um, You know, you've heard it said, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Um, You've heard it said that uh, you shall um, love your neighbor, or he says, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what that seems to reveal is that the authorities are using the law to kind of fix a minimum. Uh, So like, as long as you don't cross this line Um, You're doing what the law commands. 
as long as you don't murder, then uh, you are doing what the law commands. And Jesus says, that's not what the law is for. The law is calling us to a love that is beyond meeting a minimum. And so we're not going to settle for not murdering one another. Uh, we want to work towards not even being uh, angry uh, in a bitter way against one another or insulting one another in a way that degrades each other. Uh, and so the same goes for adultery, for example. Um, we want to guard the way that we are relating to one another's bodies sexually uh, so that it's not just did you cross some line that can be defined as making you illegal, but are you using the commandment to point towards the fullness of loving God and loving one another uh, that it is drawing our attention to? So that's what he's criticizing in the authorities is their tendency to settle for minimums, um, which often, of course, uh, reinforce their own position and maintain the existing distribution of power, the distribution of land, instead of subjecting that distribution to scrutiny um, by the righteousness that the law commands, um, which is not something that should be a minimum, but should seek the maximum of love of God, love of one another in practice. So that's one way I think of getting at Jesus's clash with the authorities. We see the same thing in Matthew 15 over food laws, um, and especially as those relate to uh, washing hands and this kind of thing. Um, Jesus accuses the authorities in public, and his disciples are worried about this. They come to him afterwards like, they re- do you realize what you're doing? <laughs> uh, but Jesus um, tells them that they are obsessing about policing um, people's bodies in a certain way and how they gather with each other. And they're not really looking uh, to promote uh, a justice that is a matter of habit coming from the heart in the way that people gather together and care for one another and are guided by God's law. And so that's what he attacks um, there in that scene right there in the middle of Matthew's gospel. One last note on this, though, Dennis, that I wouldn't want readers to um, or listeners to neglect So after all this crazy criticism, right, of these authorities, these clashes that finally lead to Jesus's death, we're nearing the end of the story in Matthew 23, and Jesus um, begins to berate uh, these same figures, scribes and Pharisees. But he begins it by saying something that I don't think Christians have had ears to hear. And he says, uh, you see that the Pharisees and scribes sit on Moses's seat. Mm. Uh, Therefore you are to do what they teach, Uh, but don't do what they do because they don't do what they teach. So again, he's exposing the hypocrisy, but not by saying, listen, you should ignore the scribes and Pharisees from now on. Just listen to me. Jesus doesn't say that. He says they remain an authority in the tradition and the legacy of Moses as those who are conveying God's law to us. And they will continue to do that after this great catastrophe blows through. And you've got to keep listening to them. They remain a source of teaching for you, even if you're going to be alert to the hypocrisy that has been exposed in them in our generation. Uh, So that's not something that I think uh, you're going to hear from the pulpit from many Christian churches. Um, But I think it's something that we should 
uh, take seriously. And uh, the way this plays out in the generation after Jesus's life is quite uh, interesting. And I think also something worth uh, studying. So this next question, the answer warrants a whole book, certainly. But with the time we have, uh, we have the command to love your enemies, do not resist an evil person, turn the other cheek. Uh, Luther and others have created two kingdom uh, theology. So these are meant to be just personal. You wouldn't apply these in a case of war or police action. But then you have the Anabaptists and the Quakers that say just the opposite. No, these are meant in any and all circumstances. Uh, I, so I know you have some interest in uh, studying nonviolence mm-hmm. as an ethicist. Um, how would you see this? Yeah. So there's a lot of debate about this that I don't want to oversimplify um, or kind of uh, give short shrift to people that I have opposed on this matter because I think that um, these are uh, challenging questions that we shouldn't give overly simplified answers to. But I I would say that the impulse that we have had in the tradition, the Christian tradition historically, to distinguish between the personal and the political is utterly alien to the Bible. Um, I don't think the Ten Commandments work that way, that Jesus draws on again and again, and that's what he's drawing on when he's teaching about turning the other cheek. Those are not just personal commands. Um, those were to be the law of the land in Israel. And I think that what Jesus is teaching uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, when it comes to uh, turning the other cheek and whatnot, is um, what he is calling uh, his people to embody as community. Uh, and I think this is borne out in the rest of his own life. Uh, he, of course, is threatened uh, both personally and politically as an authority. His generation is is threatened. Uh, they're threatened by an occupation. Um, they're threatened by rival guerrilla groups already in Jesus's day. And Jesus um, refuses calls to take up the sword. And when one of his disciples, who is unnamed in Matthew, takes up the sword to defend Jesus, which I think is a perfectly plausible thing to do, and I imagine what I would want to do myself in a situation like that, Uh, Jesus tells him to put his sword away. And I don't think he's saying that just because uh, he's Jesus and he's got to sort of do the story the right way to fulfill prophecy and then everybody else can go back to what they were doing before. Uh, The way he lives is a call to follow him. And so I think that we should learn to face violence the way that Jesus does. I worry a little bit, though, about how that does get oversimplified um, so that... um, you might say all forms of violence are then treated as equal. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that should follow. Um, while I don't think Christians should um, abide or accept or endorse any uh, kind of violence, I think that um, there are different kinds of violence and we should be uh, wise about how we criticize um, the different kinds of violence that are loose in our day. Especially, I think we should avoid the tendency that we have to sort of um, point our prophetic word that we think we're delivering against violence as if we were not implicated in it. Uh, The violence that's loose in our world is not just when people um, raise a gun to their shoulder or lift it and point it at somebody and shoot. 
Um, it's a, a matter of all kinds of patterns of our life that I don't think we should claim to be innocent of, even if we want to engage those patterns critically. Uh, the other thing that I worry about is um, I think that sometimes uh, we are quick to oppose um, violence that is presented to us as disturbing and less quick uh, to oppose violence that is the norm. So we obviously have a lot of demonstrations um, of late in the United States and beyond. And I find that uh, Christians of certain backgrounds tend to react very sharply uh, to um, coercive or threatening ways in which people um, demonstrate and gather publicly. Maybe they're lighting a car on fire or throwing stones even. And I don't want to pretend that um, all of that is above reproach uh, for Christians, but I, I worry a little bit that we rush to criticize that kind of disturbance and we're not really applying any sustained scrutiny to the norms of violence that are happening all the time. Uh, and so here I'm drawn myself to um, the, the testimony really of Martin Luther King Jr., Mm-hmm. Uh, who was very quick to, obviously he was an advocate of nonviolence. He didn't, um, he didn't support uh, Christians rising up violently, even against uh, unjust oppression of their lives. Um, but he was quick to call out the way that people were attacking the resistance of the oppressed and ignoring the way that Um, their oppressors were perpetrating a kind of ongoing violence against them, whether that was in the form of law enforcement, government policy. Uh, This would involve the war in Vietnam, so foreign policy in the United States. All of this kind of stuff kind of gets relatively accepted because it's so established. It's already so kind of assimilated as the norm in the life of so many of us. And then when people who are being um, terrorized Uh, by law enforcement or deprived systematically of an opportunity for a healthy way of living. Um, When they rise up and find themselves lashing out, uh, then suddenly, you know, everybody's really concerned about (laughs) nonviolence. And I think that there we're falling into exactly the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is opposing uh, throughout Matthew's gospel. So while I want to advocate for Christian nonviolence, I don't want to do it in a way that is hypocritical. And I want to do it, especially in a way that is sensitive to the position in which often uh, the weak and the oppressed find themselves uh, and their uh, understandable desire to, uh, to find a life that is free of constant threats uh, to their existence. Right. So it's one thing to say, as a believer, I will not take part as a policeman or a soldier, but as a prophetic voice, if you're going to speak out publicly, you need to do some cultural, historical exegesis. You need to yeah. know what's going on and yeah. be very careful. Yeah. And and yeah. do it in a way that um, doesn't imagine that there's some easy way to go from a society addicted to violence to a nonviolent society. There's no quick path to that. And so I'm, I'm really supportive of churches, for example, in my area and in Los Angeles, uh, who are critical of violent policing, for example, 
but not using that as a way of demonizing police, um, but as uh, an invitation to engage, uh, say, the LAPD, um, the Pasadena Police Department here where I live, um, to engage it critically, um, but to engage it as an agency of public government that needs, uh, we think, change, uh, maybe even radical change, but not simply pretending that we can ignore the whole pattern of social arrangement that we have inherited. We've got to we got to work with what we have, even if we're going to question it in a radical way, as I would want us to, as opposed to thinking that we can just kind of um, go do something separate that's not implicated in that. If we're going to grow from where we are, I think we have to engage the institutions that we've inherited. Um, and that takes good community organizing. It takes uh, good listening. It takes, like you're saying, cultural exegesis and attempt to understand how things have gotten to be the way that they are. If we engage critically in a way that the people we're criticizing don't don't feel like we're understanding them, have no idea where they're coming from, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. So I'm, I think that in the pursuit of nonviolence, which I do take to be a Christian calling, uh, we want to do it in a way that is um, invested in loving our neighbors uh, loving the people that we're criticizing, um, even if that means sometimes um, publicly embarrassing them, as Jesus did, uh, but not in a way that simply wants to uh, leave them behind or utterly ignore um, where they're coming from. I think that's just a recipe for polarization. Right. So all four Gospels um, culminate in the passion narratives, um, mm. the crucifixion and then re- resurrection. So what is significant, um, what is distinct about Matthew's rendering of that account? So Matthew is very close to Mark um, in the passion narrative, but there are some subtle differences even between the two. Uh, the, the one place where there is something that just jumps off the page to me that's significant in Matthew's gospel uh, is when Jesus uh, shares the cup with his disciples. He frames the entire Passover meal that he's having with them there um, with his approaching betrayal, which I don't think is a coincidence. So um, the disciples are invited to eat the body and drink the blood that they are in the midst of betraying, denying, and deserting. Uh, That's the way that Jesus loves them. Mm. But when he gives them the cup, he says, uh, this is the blood of the covenant, which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that's unique to Matthew's gospel, for the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't mean that it's not for the forgiveness of sins in the other gospels, but it's something that Matthew gives pointed expression to. And we've been told from the beginning of the story that who Jesus is, what his name means, is one who will save his people from their sins. And the forgiveness of sins has been something that's punctuated the whole drama of Matthew since uh, the name of Jesus has come into the story at the beginning. And the forgiveness of sins is uh, something that doesn't fit, I think, a lot of common understandings of that term. Uh, we often think of forgiveness very transactionally. You know, um, Jesus dies. Uh, maybe a human person does something like believe in Jesus, and then there's this transaction of immediate forgiveness. 
And that's not really the way forgiveness works in the Bible. Uh, forgiveness involves a process of repair so that when someone's sins are being forgiven, um, they are being freed, you might say, uh, to be able to participate in repair of the damage that has been done. You see this in Matthew 9, when uh, you will remember when the paralyzed man is being lowered by his friends down through a roof in Capernaum. And Jesus, uh, when he, the text says when he sees their faith, he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Some of the authorities start to grumble about his authority to do this. And then Jesus uh, says, well, that you might know that the Son of Man has power or authority on the earth to forgive sins. And he says to the paralyzed man, uh, take up your mat and walk. So what forgiveness entails is the healing of the body, the healing of the relationships of that body. It's not just that man who is affected by his paralysis, (laughs) his loved ones, his community, the friends who have lowered him through the roof. They're all affected by that disease as well. And so forgiveness is about a transformative process that unfolds in the body, in the fabric of human relationships. And so when Jesus says this is the blood of the covenant that is shed for the forgiveness of sins, I think he's saying that by the way that these disciples of his are participating in his life, even though it involves their betrayal and their desertion of Jesus, uh, they are participating in a power that is going to bring repair and healing to the pattern of their life in the body over generations. And that's the kind of forgiveness that I think Matthew is committed to and that he takes Jesus to embody and to share with other people, especially by the power of his death. Uh, So that's something that's relatively unique uh, to Matthew that I think is worth Uh, emphasizing. And then the other thing maybe is um, how the story ends, Uh, the resurrection narrative. There's a lot of uh, differences between Matthew and the other three Gospels. This is one of the places where all four Gospels have a lot of uh, unique particulars in the way the story ends. And in Matthew's Gospel, uh, the way the story ends um, is with, uh, you might say, courageous women, the only people that did not uh, desert Jesus in the end, who are caring for his body, even in death. That's something that's shared with other gospels. But then when they're told to go tell uh, Jesus's brothers, his disciples, that he's been raised from among the dead, um, and they do that, the, the next scene with them is in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. And that's, of course, where Matthew's story, uh, at least in Jesus' adult life, has begun. When he settles in Galilee, this is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah about light shining in the darkest places where Israel had first been invaded by Assyria so many generations before, according to Isaiah. And so we're back in Galilee, in this place in the north, uh, and we have this very brief encounter It's striking because we're told that when the disciples see Jesus at this mountain that he's told them to go to, um, they doubt. Uh, And I think that it's a picture of how discipleship, even after the resurrection of the dead, is still learning. (laughs) Uh, It's still dealing with all kinds of misgivings and mistakes that we have in our lives and our minds. 
And yet Jesus responds to that doubt by saying uh, that all power has been given to him in heaven and on earth. This is only in Matthew. And the expression of that power now is what he shares with them, that they're sent by him to disciple, to train, to teach all the peoples of the world. And to do that, following the pattern that Jesus has been giving them throughout the story, which is, of course, not one of uh, coming in with armies and dominating populations, subordinating them as so much Christian mission, I'm afraid, has done over the years. Um, but when he sent them out before, he sent them out um, without swords, um, without weapons, without extra clothes, without extra sandals, without money for themselves, because the kingdom of heaven takes shape with the way that they share their lives with other people and experience something that's mutual and hospitable as opposed to coercively imposed uh, from without. And so that's how the story ends, with them being sent to do that kind of discipling work, sometimes translated, uh, you know, make disciples of all the, pe- the peoples. I don't think that's a very good translation because it assumes that the, the object of discipleship is the individual person. And of course, individuals are involved in being trained to follow Jesus. But um, Jesus sends his apostles out to disciple peoples as peoples. As communities, uh, we learn to follow Jesus together. It's about addressing and uh, growing in our relationships that we have with each other. That's that's how discipleship unfolds, not just me as an individual following Jesus. So uh, that is significant to the end of Matthew's story and sets this particular gospel apart from all of the other three uh, in terms of ending with this kind of a commission. All right, and one final question for you, and I'm uh, stealing this from the podcast you did with Kind of, Chris, kind of Christian. Mm. Um, where do we get Jesus wrong? Mm. Well, I suppose that uh, I hope by this point in the conversation, uh, the audience has a sense that we should probably never get too comfortable with how we understand Jesus in any area of our lives, but assume that we're going to spend our whole lives uh, growing in our understanding of who Jesus is, and that we need other people, um, both Christian and non-Christian, by the way, to help us do that. But especially, I think, where we neglect the teaching of Matthew's gospel, um, I would say, uh, is especially in um, the economics of our life, uh, the way that um, we avoid accumulating um, wealth on the earth, because we're committed to a life of sharing with one another rather than hoarding. Um, That's really basic to Christian discipleship in Matthew. If you read John Chrysostom's commentary on Matthew in the fourth century, this is something that's just taken for granted um, as basic to what it means to be Christian. And that's not something that I think um, a lot of churches um, or cultures influenced by Christianity have been able to remain committed to. And so we have uh, sometimes spiritualized the teaching of Jesus so that it's supposedly just about, you know, some kind of psychological attachment that we have to wealth and doesn't address the quantity of our wealth itself. And I just think that's wrong. I think that Jesus does mean to criticize the quantity of wealth itself and to teach us to be people who are divesting ourselves when we have accumulated a lot or inherited a lot so that we can invest what it is that we've come to possess in a future that is not one of hoarding, 
but one of abundant sharing that um, lifts up uh, entire communities of people and takes care of our places um, rather than just uh, kind of investing in the future of ourselves or our families to the exclusion of others. That's one area. We've talked about nonviolence as well. I think the way that we think about politics today, the assumption that there's a divide between the personal and the political or the public and the private allows us to effectively domesticate a lot of Matthew's gospel and its teaching on Christian discipleship um, as if it weren't about our political lives, as if it weren't about government, when in fact I think quite clearly it is. Um, So that's another area of life that I think we uh, get wrong. And let me just close with one other. And it's kind of been a theme of our conversation, and it's just something I'd want to drive home at the end. And what I think we get wrong about Matthew is um, our tendency to imagine that we have figured Jesus out and that um, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, um, what we have to do is basically uh, get other people to learn what we've already come to understand or believe what we already believe. And I think that's getting Jesus wrong in Matthew and getting the gospel wrong uh, because it presents to us instead a lifelong pilgrimage of learning in which we have to assume that we have it within ourselves to betray Jesus, uh, to deny Jesus, um, that that is the story of discipleship. It's not just the story of some enemy of Jesus out there. It's the story of Christian disciples so that we want the scrutiny that we learn, the criticism that we learn in Matthew's gospel to be applied primarily to ourselves as communities and as persons And it's only in so far as we're doing that faithfully that I think we'll have anything constructive or redemptive to share with other people, with the larger structures of our society. Um, And that's something that I hope that we can learn uh, from Matthew's gospel. You might remember back in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says uh, how we're supposed to judge. Um, It's not by looking for something we can find wrong in other people. It's always concerned with obvious things that are wrong in our own lives and that need to be addressed. And it's only as we're addressing those together that we'll have anything to say uh, to anyone else. All right. Good words to live by. You've been listening to The Charge with Dennis Metzler, and we've been looking at the uh, Gospel of Matthew with Dr. Tommy Givens. So, Dr. Givens, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dennis, and thanks to all of you for watching or listening. It's been a a pleasure for me to be a part of this. All right.